Ishanol. Occasional uh, bickering in the Campbell household uh, stems from the fact that I have a higher threshold for untidiness and mess <laughs> than my wife does, right? That creates tension, tension in, in our home. Uh, but, but, uh, and Ruth especially, if you thought you had a bad, if you thought you had a bad, let me introduce you to Mrs. Lovelady, okay? Play the video, please. There's a lot of dust throughout the flat. There's a lot of grease in the kitchen. It must be 24 years since the flat was thoroughly cleaned. And I think it shows. If I had to choose between cleaning and doing a crossword, it would have to be the crossword every time. Okay. And we could go on. <laughs> we could go on. Just, I just want you to capture what she said. 24 years since she cleaned her flat properly. It's, uh, if you're anything like me at all, you watch those images, you kind of recoil from them. They're, they're disgusting to see a flat that dirty. Uh, it's skin crawling, stomach churning. Uh, and I hope, even for you students out there, uh, I hope you all recognize that actually letting a house get that dirty... Uh, tolerating that much dirt and dust, mold and multiplying bacteria is bad. That's bad for your health, uh, and it's certainly bad for your social life, okay? Um, but I want to suggest to you that there's a whole, that's just one example of a whole bunch of examples of things that we should not tolerate. We should not tolerate. You shouldn't tolerate that level of filth, physical dirt. But there's a whole, that's just one example. There's, if, if there's lies been told in a courtroom, it's time to be intolerant, isn't it? Time to be intolerant. If there is, um, if there's cheating going on in an exam hall, uh, it's time to be intolerant. If there's bullying going on in a playground, harassment going on in an office, it's time to be intolerant. You get the idea. There's a whole bunch of areas in which tolerance is not a good thing. Is not a good thing. Toler- in, being intolerant is the right thing. Uh, and that takes us to the very heart of this uh, postcard that the risen Lord Jesus writes to this church in Thyatira. And, and if you forget everything else I said, here's the point. Verse 20. Verse 20. Here's what Jesus says. I have this against you. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. They're rebuked for being too tolerant. Now, in our 21st century, that, that, that saying stuff like that is not popular. That grates against our ears, doesn't it? Uh, we are constantly being told that tolerance is almost always a good thing. Uh, and please don't misunderstand Jesus here. Jesus is not against tolerance uh, of people and cultural difference. He's not. 
Uh, in fact, if you read some of the, the biographies of the life, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you'll see he had extraordinary tolerance. He was welcoming and compassionate with a whole range of people uh, that were scandalous in his day. Uh, he was especially tolerant to the social outcasts. No, Jesus is not against cultural tolerance of diversity. Uh, And in fact, in the church, uh, Paul, one of Jesus' followers, goes on to say, in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentiles, neither slave nor free. There's neither male uh, or female. Uh, We are all one in Christ. The church is to be for cultural diversity. We're to be tolerant of personal difference. Um, And we are to be uh, for unity, uh, equality, and diversity, uh, both in the church and we are to be, as Christians, leading the way for diversity and tolerance of cultural difference in society. However, however, if you read some of the biographies of Jesus, you will see that he was tolerant of people and personality and cultural difference but he was famously intolerant of error and evil. Do you see the difference? He was tolerant of people and their differences, but he was intolerant of false teaching and self-hurting immoral living. He was famously intolerant uh, of that. And as we have gone through these letters, these postcards from the risen Jesus to seven very real churches in the first century facing very real problems, very similar as we've seen all the way through to the problems we face today, you can see the similar concern from the Lord Jesus. I don't know if it's in one of those slides, but the way the letters are put together, we haven't had a chance to do this so far, but the way the letters are put together, they're, put, they're structured in a big sandwich, in a big sandwich. Uh, letter number one uh, to Ephesus Uh, And letter number seven to Laodicea are a warning, a warning Uh, to to Ephesus. They are warned, you're committed, yeah, that's good, but you're cold, but you're cold, come back to me. Uh, And the warning again at the end, you're rich, but you're repulsive to me because you're half-hearted, lukewarm in your love. Let me come to you, Okay. Uh, those are the bread on each end of the sandwich Uh, then the butter on each side is a letter of encouragement where there's no criticism at all a letter to Smyrna they're told you're fearful but you're faithful keep going Um, in the same way letter number six to Philadelphia is an encouragement you've no strength you're very vulnerable but you're secure keep going and in the middle then Uh, are three letters, three letters, which all have this common theme of zero tolerance, zero tolerance. Um, Pergamum, as we looked last week, you're, don't be tolerating, stop tolerating false believers, stop tolerating false believers in the sense that there are believers who believe wrong things and are practicing it in harmful ways. It is not a kind, loving thing to just ignore that and let people just agree to disagree and go on and continue in their self-harming behavior. No, no, speak up, stop. Don't be tolerant of that. Don't be tolerant of believers believing wrong things. This week, uh, as we look at this letter to Thyatira, stop tolerating false teachers, those who are actually promoting the wrong ideas. Don't tolerate that. Definitely don't tolerate that. 
Uh, and next week we'll see stop tolerating false reputations. There's some of you have a reputation for being Christians, but actually you're, there's no life about you at all. The fact that it's possible you're not even believers in the first place. You get the idea. This, this theme then uh, of zero tolerance of evil and uh, error is at the very heart of the messages that Jesus gives to the churches uh, and at the very heart uh, of the message Jesus has for us uh, today. So we come to letter number four in the seven, uh, the church at Thyatira. Uh, And as you hopefully have seen by now, as we're four letters in, uh, each letter begins with a, a reference back to the description of the Lord Jesus, this wonderful vision of the risen Lord Jesus in chapter 1. And each description that's picked up of the risen Lord Jesus is particularly appropriate uh, for each church. So notice how Jesus is described in this letter. Here is the the, the one writing the letter. Uh, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. These are the words of the Son of God. Thyatira was set up, was established by Alexander the Great, for those of you who know your history, who conquered the whole world by the age he was 30. Uh, And it was originally set up to be a military base. It was on a crossroads, a sort of strategic point, set up as a military base. uh, And it really grew out of that. Um, But the soldiers who were based there worshipped Apollo, the hunting god, who was the son of Zeus, the son of God. And so Jesus, right from the offset, is saying, forget about Apollo, forget about Apollo. There's only one son of God. I am the son of the true and living God. I am the one you need to listen to. I am the one who you need to contend with. His eyes are of flashing fire or blazing fire. We saw this when we looked at chapter 1, this idea that Jesus sees past all pretense. He sees past all the veneer of respectability. He knows what's really going on, uh, what the real attitudes and intentions of all our hearts is. Nothing is hidden from him. A friend of mine tells a story about his little boy when he was five or six uh, who had... um, a particular attraction for illicit biscuits. He would sneak down in the morning and he would get into the kitchen and he would climb up onto the worktop and get into the cookie jar and get the biscuit. And one day his dad caught him. His dad caught him. And he said, I'll never forget how my son reacted. His son just stood there and closed his eyes. <laughs> Working on the principle that if he, I can't see him, then he can't see me. Right? That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's obviously ridiculous. And yet, and yet, if we're honest, is that not a principle that shapes our lives a thousand times a day? I can't see God, so maybe he can't see me doing what I'm doing. This will come up later in the letter. He sees everything, nothing is hidden from him. His feet of burnished or polished bronze. We looked at that again back in chapter 1. Picking up some of the language of Daniel. Even today we talk about people who have uh, feet of clay. 
feet of clay. And what we mean by that is they're a very respectable, admirable person, but they've got some big faults that we all know about. They're flawed, lovely, great, but flawed. Jesus has no flaws. Pure, a man of an absolute perfect integrity. Stable, what he stands for and what he stands against, he can't be moved away from. And so this is the one who is writing the letter, the glorious Lord Jesus, who sees past the pretense to the attitudes and intentions of our hearts really and who is perfectly pure and holy. What does he have to say? What does he have to say to this church? He has three things to say. He he commends them. Some things are doing well. He criticizes them, as you've already heard, and then he comforts them. And as we eavesdrop on this conversation that Jesus has with this church, uh, I want us to hear the three searching questions the Lord Jesus has for us. Three searching questions. Number one, as he commends them, are we an active church? Are we an active church? As he criticizes them, we need to hear the question, are we a tolerant church? And then thirdly, as he comforts them, are we a hopeful church? And just to give you a heads up, question number two is we'll spend the most time there. So don't be panicking when we're near the end. It feels like you should be finishing Lee and you haven't even got to the third question. Um, But let's dive in. First, then, as Jesus commends them, we need to hear the question, are we an active church Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. What, are the, what does Jesus see with his eyes of blazing fire? He sees the good. That's comforting, isn't it? We feel often, as we, we feel unappreciated and our work's not done, Jesus sees what's good. Jesus sees and it delights him. What does he see? Well, first he sees their ministries, the things they're doing Two things they're doing. First is their deeds. Their deeds probably refers to their good deeds. And probably those are outward looking. uh, As they do good deeds in and towards the community that they live in. Perhaps they had a a toddler's group for young mums. Perhaps they had a food bank. Or more likely, perhaps just as individuals, they they were moved to see the needs in the lives of colleagues classmates and neighbors and respond respond with practical service and help they were doing good deeds but notice also jesus sees their service their service this is the word translated often translated deacon in the new testament it's this idea of of serving and it's generally focused within the community uh, of god's people Uh, and so these were folks who were not just leaving works of service in the local church to staff or the super dedicated, super exhausted, uh, committed ones. No, this is a church where everybody, everybody is using their gifts, where everybody is seeing need and responding, uh, where everyone is playing their part within the church family. Uh, Jesus commends them for their ministry Good deeds, service. He commends them for their motives. Their motives, their, uh, your love 
and faith. If you were to go along to, let's call it Christchurch Thyatira on a Sunday morning and you come in the door, you would have found a warm, loving, welcoming church. You would have found people who would have been talking to each other, would have known each other's names, were committed to each other and involved in one another's lives. This was a church where they were doing these works of service, not out of dry duty or some resented routine that they're stuck in. No, no, they were genuinely motivated by love for other people. And if you had gone to that church, you would have heard their worship to be passionate. You would have heard them talking about the Lord Jesus a lot because they loved him. They loved him. And their service and their good deeds were motivated by their love, their love for one another, their love for the Lord Jesus. And they were motivated by faith, by motivated by faith. They had come to understand the kindness, the compassion, and the mercy of God, and they embraced that. And the kindness and the compassion and the mercy of God had so inspired them that they wanted to be kind and compassionate and merciful themselves. Uh, that's the point of the book of James, isn't it? It's faith always leads to action. If you really get the gospel and trust it, it'll change you. It'll change you. And that's what had happened for them. Uh, Jesus sees their ministries. He sees their motives. And he sees that they're making progress. He sees they're making progress. Um, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. More good deeds, more acts of service, more love, more faith. You are doing well. I think there's a challenge for us here. Are we an active church like that? Or are we just an active church where we're doing lots of stuff, but it's just dry duty and resented routine? One of the big challenges for us, this is for us as a local church, for us as a community and a family here, is that is disunity and lack of love for each other. That will shipwreck our mission if we give in to that. And that is a particular challenge uh, for us at the moment. And so one, I plead with you to pray for us as a church that we would be united together and love one another. Are we an active church like this? But more than that, and this is a sobering thought, the sobering thought is that you could love a lot, you could believe a lot, you could do a lot, and still come under the sharp criticism of the Lord Jesus. And that's what's happening here. They come under the sharp criticism of the Lord Jesus. I wonder if you've, if you've been here for the last few weeks, especially when we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. I wonder, did you notice, even as we read it, that this is the Thyatira is the mirror image of the church at Ephesus. They had... They had lost their first love, but were intolerant of the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whoever they were, who were teaching falsely, leading to immoral behavior. They were, they they lost their love, but they were bang on and are commended for truth. It's the other way around in Thyatira, isn't it? They are loving each other, but they have let go of the truth. They're allowing false teaching, a platform in their church. And so the question I have for you is, which do you think is more important in a local church? 
truth or love. Would you choose? My point is that that's a really stupid question, Lee, isn't it? That's a really stupid... That's a bit like saying, do you like airplanes with right wings or do you like airplanes with left wings, right? No, no, I'm not going to get on a plane without both wings, thank you very much. We need both. Both are absolutely essential for the health of a local church. Both are essential. And so what we've got here then leads us to the second question or the second idea. Jesus' criticism. Jesus' criticism And the question, are we tolerant, or maybe are we too tolerant? Um, We see it there in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Again, if I ask you the question, are we tolerant? In one sense, I hope the answer would be yes. Uh, Of course we should be tolerant of personal differences the person who sits next to you who sings out of tune uh, or has dodgy personal hygiene or whatever it is. There's no one in that category here, obviously. Uh, but you get the idea. Uh, we are to be tolerant of, of difference in our, in our church. Uh, we are to be tolerant of different diversity and, and education and uh, temperament. Of course we're to be a tolerant church. But there is a sense in which, as we've already said, that not all tolerance is good. Not all tolerance is good. And tolerance of evil and tolerance of error, well, they're deadly. They're deadly. And we should be completely intolerant um, of that. A little bit of background about Thyatira. A little bit more background, maybe. Uh, Thyatira was the smallest city of the seven to get a letter. Uh, And ironically, it gets the longest, most difficult letter. Um, it, um, Ephesus was a main cultural center. It was like the New York of the ancient world with all this beautiful architecture and buildings and all. Uh, Pergamum, as we said, was like the Washington of the ancient world. It was the big political center and hub. Um, Smyrna was a port, very, very wealthy, a bit like the London of the ancient world. Um, Thyatira was a bit like the Straban of the ancient world. <laughs> the Lurgan of the ancient world, okay? It was, it was a blue-collar town, and people lived and worked there, but it, had, it was in no guidebook. <laughs> there was nothing to see there if you went there. There was nothing spectacular or of note there. And its industry, it, the way it made its living um, was that it was be- the whole economy was based on small cottage industry um, by, by some very skilled uh, artisans in the ancient world. And so they were famous for their pottery. Uh, they were famous for their leather work. But perhaps most of all, they were famous for their textile industry, wool and linen and dyeing. So most of you probably read this letter thought, I've never heard of Thyatira before, but some of you have actually, some of you have heard of Thyatira before. The first convert in Europe was a lady called Lydia, and she was a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. Okay, here is one example of one of the local small business women uh, who's making her way in the world that's typical of people who lived uh, in Thyatira. 
but if you lived there uh, and were in part of this business, what all of these little industries did, if you were in the pottery industry or the textile industry or so on, what, you, what they did was they organized themselves into trade guilds, trade guilds. And that enabled them to make sure the apprentices were all trained in the same way and the standards could be maintained. They were to get together, to negotiate together with suppliers to get a better deal and so on. So there was all sorts of good reasons for doing that. They were part of a trade guild. And you might think, what's the problem there? What's the problem there? That's a bit like a trade union today. It's a bit like a professional association today. The problem is that each of these trade guilds had their own patron god. Um, So the weavers had their patron god, and the dyers had their patron god, and the potters had their patron god. I don't know what the, the, the potter's patron god was. Harry, maybe. Uh, oh, you see, I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, but when they got together, think, they got together maybe once a month to do some networking business and they had a feast together, these trade guilds. Um, and what they had to do when they got together, would they would toast their god, they would have a big banquet together, they would offer a sacrifice to their god, their patron god, and have a statue of him or her in the corner. And think office Christmas party can often get a bit out of hand, uh, and often women were invited along for entertainment reasons, okay? You can see how that's a problem. That's a problem if you're a Christian to live in Thyatira. And if you weren't a member of the guild, if you weren't a member of the guild, you would not get an apprenticeship, and more than likely, people would boycott your business. This is a big problem. And on top of that, uh, one of the big controversies in the first century, in the early Christian church, was if a Gentile, someone who's not from a Jewish background, was to become a Christian, uh, did they have to become a Jew before becoming a Christian? Uh, And so there was a big conference that was held that we read about in Acts chapter 15 where the apostles got together and they discussed this issue and they decided, no, if you're a Gentile from a non-Jewish background, you don't have to become a Jew and take on all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. Uh, You could become become Christian straight away. The only thing was, and they they wrote this in a letter to all the churches, that... um, If you were a Gentile Christian, you weren't allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols. You weren't allowed to engage in any sexual immorality or eat blood. Do you see how now the Christians in Thyatira are in a tough spot? It's difficult for them. They're they're torn. How do I make a living? How do I live here, work here, and not be part of the guild, and yet not compromise my faith by being part of the guild? And it seems that one woman, uh, a literal woman, uh, Jezebel, referred to as Jezebel here. Now, by the way, it's highly, highly, highly unlikely that that was her given name on her birth certificate. Um, we, you don't call your children after villains of history. You know, there's not many little adults running around in creche there. It's, just, it's just not something you do. But... What is this saying? What is this saying? What is she doing? Um, Well, to understand what she's doing, 
we need to understand the Old Testament reference here. We can read about the, the literal Jezebel in two Kings uh, chapter sixteen or one Kings chapter sixteen right through to two Kings chapter nine. She was the, the wife of King Ahab. She was a passionate from a different country, uh, Sidon. Uh, she was a passionate worshipper of another god, Baal, a fertility god, uh, and made it her mission to bring in the worship of Baal into Israel. Uh, she was deceptive. She was a schemer. She was a ruthless murderer. Um, And she was the power actually behind the throne. And so when you get a summary of King Ahab's rule uh, in 2 Kings chapter uh, 21 verse 25, you read this. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And listen to this urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife. She was the one who was speaking in his ear, influencing him to go the way of immorality, to go the way of idolatry, worshiping another god. And so it seems to be, if that is the background in Thyatira, it seems to be that there's a a lady who came along who's doing something very similar to the Jezebel in the Old Testament. It seems that she was coming along and saying, look, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay to be involved in the trade guild. Totally okay. What, what's going on there is not that bad. God doesn't really care. And probably some Greek thought there as well thrown into the mix. The Greeks tended to think that your body was bad and... Well, The real you was the you inside. And so what you did in the body didn't really matter as long as you had a good heart. So she's probably saying stuff like that. And look, does does God want you to starve? No, his plans to prosper you. Not to harm you. God wants you to just get stuck in, get involved. It's okay, it's fine. And you can see how that's a popular message to the the Christians in Thyatira. And it seems that many of them listened to her and they did get involved. They got stuck in. Um, Now, Jezebel, this false teacher's long gone. She's long gone. But her style of false teaching is alive and well in the church today. Alive and well. Um, For example, if you look across the water... Uh, And you see uh, a lot of the prosperity gospel teaching. God wants, God promises health and wealth for you. That's that's his big priority. Get stuck in. And so the teaching of folks like Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers, although they have good things to say and good advice to give on various things, nevertheless fundamentally are teaching a prosperity gospel. A A gospel that the Lord Jesus didn't promise. If you look at our mainline denominations in the UK, closer to home, mainline denominations in the UK, there's plenty of false teachers there who are saying, you don't need to listen to the apostles anymore. You know about gender and sexual ethics and abortion. You don't need to listen to them. You don't need to listen to what the apostles say. We've moved on. It's not realistic to believe those things. It's not realistic to hold to those things anymore. We're we're mature now as a society. We can leave those primitive ideas behind. It's, It's okay. Plenty of bishops and church leaders 
who are teaching exactly that sort of thing. And look, it's very, very easy for us to point the finger out there at all the bad, false teachers out there. But the challenge, I think, for us this morning is that there is a strong tendency inside each of our hearts to tilt, to behave like Jezebel. To allow and excuse away immoral behavior in our own lives. To say to ourselves, it doesn't really matter. God really doesn't see. And even if he does see, he really doesn't care that much about that. Whatever it is. One issue that I think uh, we need to talk about. uh, It's the elephant in the room, maybe. Uh, And to be honest, I'd rather not have to talk about it. But one issue that springs to mind when we think of immorality that remains hidden behind a veneer of respectability in our situation is internet pornography. Uh, A recent survey was done by Christianity Today magazine where it was all anonymous and thousands of people submitted their their information. Uh, And it found that 50% of the Christian men who responded in the survey had viewed pornographic material in the last month. And 35% of Christian women had viewed pornographic material in the last month. This is a, and if those statistics, which I suspect are conservative, are anything to go by, there are folks in this room struggling this morning. In the old days, you used to have to go and get a magazine. Um, buy it in the new, buy it in the news agent. That's but but today it's streamed, right often for free, right into your computer in the privacy of your own home, available at the click of a mouse. And I guess I want you to see fundamentally that this is something that is harming you, something that's harming you. It's corrosive to your faith. It will damage, if not destroy, your marriage and will warp and twist your relationships. And it's something that the Lord Jesus hates. It's something that he hates. Again, this is where I need to come in quickly with the good news. You need to feel the weight of this first. This is not on. And yet, I want to come in quickly with the good news of the gospel. Because failure is never final. Uh, There is nothing that the blood of Jesus can't atone for. He has given his Holy Spirit to really bring real change in your life and in my life. Um, And I speak to you, look, I stand here and I speak to you as a fellow struggler. A fellow struggler. I'm not standing looking down my self-righteous nose at you. I've struggled with lust my whole adult life. Um, But what I want you to see is that Jesus hates this, and it's not okay. It's not okay. This is something you must do something about. And especially, uh, this is something we're called to repent of, to turn away from, but also we're called, I think, to get help with this, to get help with this. If you're a young man, I think particularly young men, we think uh, it'd be too embarrassing to share this with anybody. I can't talk about this. I'd just get, I'd be too ashamed. I'd get condemnation. Uh, But again, we're all sexual failures. 
I don't think you would get condemnation, actually. Um, and what we need is one another, one another, to support, hold one another accountable. And so if you're someone that's struggling this morning with that, this is the day. This is the day. Mark the date. Draw a line in the sand. This is the day I'm going to get help. Please come and talk to me. Talk to a, a trusted older Christian uh, woman or man of the same gender, by the way, um, who you can talk to about this, who will help you with this, who will pray for you, hold you accountable for this. And it is one forgiveness is offered. Notice forgiveness is offered even to this woman, even to Jezebel. She was offered forgiveness, and yet she turned away. Forgiveness is offered to all of us, no matter how broken we are. Uh, and there is hope and there is change possible with the help of other believers and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Are we an active church, but with activity motivated by love and faith? Are we a tolerant church, tolerating what is false and potentially evil in our own lives? And then lastly, are we a hopeful church? Our time is gone. Are we a hopeful church? The last couple of verses there, we, see, we, we recognize that being active like this, being tolerant, is, is it's difficult to be active. It's easy to be tolerant. We need some powerful incentives to keep us going, and Jesus gives us exactly that. First, he promises in verse 27, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my Father, I will also give them the morning star. Two things, two things. Jesus promises two things for us to hold on to that will motivate us to keep going as we look to the future. Number one, we will rule with him. This is a quote from Psalm 2 where we're told of the Lord establishing his king. And that is true for Jesus right now. He is the risen king. His rule may be contested and unseen, but, but he is ruling, and one day it will be uncontested and seen. He is the king. He is the king right now. But the promise here is that we get to share in his rule. We get to be part of the new creation. Uh, we get to be with him uh, and share in his in the joy of developing whatever it is we get to do in the new creation. Um, we get to rule with him, and we get to have a relationship with him. There's an obscure reference there, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, if you fast forward in, in the book of Revelation to 20, chapter 22, verse 16, we're told that Jesus himself is the morning star. I am the morning star. And what we're promised is that we're promised this intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. The great reward is him, is him. We get to, to enjoy a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord Jesus, the relationship for which we were made. And it's those two things, these, this wonderful future, that if we hold on and if we serve motivated by love and faith, if we refuse to give in to false teaching and evil in our lives, albeit imperfectly, we are promised that we will rule with him and we're promised that we will have this intimate relationship with him. 
And so as the Son of God speaks to us this morning with his eyes of blazing fire looking at your heart and mine, what does he see? Well, whatever he sees, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us forgiveness. And he offers us, if we hold firmly to him and respond with repentance and faith, he offers us this fantastic future, a future of being with him in the new creation and being with him in intimate relationship. I think our, our right response to him is now is to, to share in communion together. We're going to do that, uh, remembering the gospel, that there's cleansing and hope and life because of Jesus, not because we've got to pull up our socks and try harder. And so I'm just going to give us a little bit of time to, to, to respond in silence as we pray. Uh, I will guide us. Um, let's bow our heads and our hearts as we pray together. Let's, uh, as we confess our sins and claim the, the promises of the gospel again today.